0: Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Right. So, welcome to Emma Brunel on this very special state-of-the-race edition of uh, the Democratically 2020 podcast. For those of you who are watching this uh, podcast on video, um, this is a first first attempt at a video version of uh, what is normally an audio-only podcast, um, because this week I want to take you through uh, a presentation that talks about um, my assessment of the state of the race so far. Um, We're going to be looking at at the whole race. So we'll be looking at the presidency, um, also obviously looking at um, our democratic prospects in the Senate, the House of Representatives, and also taking a little look at some gubernatorial and local races. Um, and what I'll do is we'll just kind of pause and have a little chat after I go through each um, each of these major offices, and Emma and I can just have a little little conversation about kind of what we think about it. But I, I did think it was useful to just set out my thoughts. So. Emma, does that all make sense?
1: It does. The only thing I would say to you is you've made the same mistake the Obama um, team made, which is putting the presidency first and the gubernatorial local races last. But, you know, we can get yeah.
0: picked. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. Well, I guess, you know what, to be honest, part of me, I just wanted to get that out of the way because I know a lot of people dial into my podcast just to be like, what's happening with the presidential race? But the sting in the tail is that none of it matters if we don't get the local races right. So 100%. So we will cover that more when we get to it. Um, But before we even talk about the presidency, I think we just have to nod to what a bizarre time this is for anyone to be running for office at any level. the biden campaign and all of the people who are running for office these days um of course we we all expect there's a long tradition in american politics and and politics everywhere i think of voter engagement being a very high touch exercise and um, whilst advertising is really important i'm a field person um, i've always been a big advocate for all the work that we do on the ground through events, through rallies, through door knocking, um, you know, phone calls we can still do. (laughs) But so many of the things that makes politics rich and rewarding and make it um, persuadable and bring people into the civic society and the democracy that that, that we cherish are not possible at least while the virus continues to rampage across the country. So although, as we'll talk about a little bit, um, the virus has caused lots of problems for Donald Trump's campaign. It's also causing lots of problems for anyone running for office and for all of the work that we need to do. It makes it harder to get our volunteers organized. It makes it harder for us to get out the vote. Um, it means canvassing and persuasion has to happen in totally different ways than it has before, which means that we're going to have to be really smart, really agile, really thoughtful, really creative about ways to make that happen. And, um, it may not be ideal to have one of the oldest nominees, if not the oldest nominee we've ever had, but, but we got- agile. <laughs> Not agile. Not necessarily thinking in an agile way. Um, but on the other hand, there are some really smart people in the party. Um, and I, I very much hope that we will, at every level of office, um, that we'll be creative and thoughtful and innovative about, about how to ch- meet this challenge. Um, so let's just think of that as kind of the underlying the, the sort of leitmotif, the, the background melody that's going to underpin all of our thinking about these races. So the big question, working, as Emma says, probably backwards in order of importance from, uh, from, from what really matters, but the one that's on everyone's mind is, is the presidency. Um, where do we stand in the presidential race right now? And the thing is with Joe Biden, um, he's been consistently, amazingly consistently about six points ahead of Donald Trump in national polls. Now, obviously, as we'll come on to, national is not everything. Hillary Clinton won the national polling and indeed won the national election, but but lost in the critical swing states. Um, but the consistency of it is really interesting. And that's something that we didn't see in 2016. 2016 was a really volatile race. And even though Clinton was um, leading for most of it, we saw a lot of ups and downs and we saw a large number of undecided voters until the very, very end of the race. We're seeing fewer undecideds in this race, um, and we're seeing much less volatility, which I think we should take as a good sign. Having said that, six points is not enough um, for the race to not be close, um, because we obviously have a lot of other headwinds that we're facing. As, as previously discussed, there's the get out the vote challenge that we have. But there is also just the fact that um, the electoral college makeup of the, re- of the nation is disfavorable to Democratic candidates as a general rule in 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 its current makeup. Um, and that obviously came to life very clearly in the last election, where Trump lost by about nearly three points, um, but still took the presidency. Um, that's still the case. And in fact, some, some people argue that the electoral college margin might be, um, disadvantage might be bigger for Democrats this time. So a six-point margin is probably still a pretty close race. And we are pretty, we, we're, we're far from feeling confident that that's the case. Um, one bit of good news, though, is that we have more than one path to the president. Obviously, in 2016, um, Clinton famously lost Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those three states are still our best path back into the presidency. So. Um, absolutely, we still need to focus on them. And the good news is that Michigan and Pennsylvania have been looking very positive, and Wisconsin has been looking very, very close. Um, so, you know, sometimes Trump comes out ahead, sometimes Biden comes out ahead. Um, I think Biden more recently has been a few points ahead in Wisconsin as well as the other two states, but it's always very close. And there's a lot of opportunities there for voter suppression and shenanigans, malarkey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to cause problems. Um, So I think although those three states remain important, what we really wanna be able to do is open up other paths. And the good news is we also have other paths. Um, The most obvious one right now looks like Arizona. Um, where Democrats are performing really, really well, as we'll talk about both in the Senate race and also in the the presidential race. Um, Other ones to watch are North Carolina and Florida, as you can see from this map. Um, Florida has a lot of electoral votes at stake. So if we win Florida, we're pretty much not guaranteed, but I think it would be hard to lose the election for a Democrat whilst winning Florida. Um, But um, we also have North Carolina, which I think is probably more of a stretch, but because it's demographically similar to Virginia, which has become increasingly democratic and because it's pulling very close, um, it's a pretty good prospect. We'll call that a wild card. Um, You might also wanna say maybe places like Georgia, maybe places like Iowa. Um, I think, I personally think those are probably a little too far outside of reach for for this election, but in a swing, in a chaotic election with a lot happening and, and in the background of a virus, who knows, anything could happen. Um, One thing to watch in particular that I think we should be especially encouraged by though is a very specific demographic problem that Trump has, which is that he swept into office primarily well not primarily but in part with a lot of support from older voters and he is losing those it's kind of popular people like to say oh well nothing there's nothing that trump can do to lose his voters well that's not true he is losing older voters right now um, and he's losing their support by a pretty high margin that's good news not only because older voters tend to vote reliably but also because they're well represented in some of those critical states Um, particularly Florida, um, Ohio, Wisconsin, um, some of those northern states. There are a lot of older voters, and that's a really good prospect for us. Emma, what's your take on all this? D- have I been too optimistic?
1: Um, I mean, it's an optimistic-ish take, um, but it's, I don't think it's un- unrealistic. Um, I don't think you've been too optimistic. I think you have given a sunny... a sunny... Um, show of reality yeah um i think particularly that last slide is the most important because um i mean i think the six point lead worries me a little bit because um where is that lead and i think so many people have made up their minds about um trump and to be fair biden um yeah. that it it concerns me that what that what you'll get is piling up of votes in Places that were always going to be democratic, um, and much much tighter races where we don't want them to be. Um, so that that you know, six a consistent six point lead is better than a consistent five point lead or four point lead <laughs> or three point. Lead. But I just yeah, a national polling in the US, given the electoral college, drives me slightly nuts.
0: <laughs> yep yep yeah.
1: I mean the good news
0: is the state by state polling is also looking good for us, but. Yeah. I'm hesitant to rely on it because there hasn't been very much of it.
1: There hasn't been enough for it to be comprehensive or feel, I mean, I I don't want to come across all Nate Silver, mainly because I'm a Claire Malone kind of a gal, but, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I just, um, I don't know that trying to build a comprehensive picture out of what is out there at the moment is a good use of polling.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we will get tons more swing state polls as time goes on. Right now, we don't have a lot of data to work from. But the data we have, I would say, is cautiously encouraging. And And I
1: think this this last slide about the age group, because frankly, um, it's not so much can Biden win it, but can Trump lose it? And that's what tells me that Trump could, could lose it
0: yeah yeah and i mean you know although as i alluded to earlier there are probably some disadvantages to biden being an older voter an older candidate um but there are also some advantages a he has some affinity with this age group um you know they, they they know him he's been around a long time there's a lot of familiarity um a group of voters that tend to be very risk averse and very um uncomfortable with change um biden's not biden's not big change now us Elizabeth Warren supporters, and certainly the Bernie Sanders supporters out there might say that's a shame, Um, but for the voters who are wary um, and who think that Trump has been too much change, Biden might be an encouraging return to form for them.
1: Yeah, I think um, there was a sense four years ago that um, things were too calm. Um, And the no drama Obama thing was all very well, but actually, post 2008 we needed a little bit more drama yeah um and hillary was certainly not offering that um trump was going to drain the swamp he was offering whirlwind change in a very specific way now what he's given us is all whirlwind um, but actually no change from the corruption that people rightly or wrongly envisaged was was deep in Washington. In oh, back, I think there's plenty of change. House. It's just all sort of in the wrong direction. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He hasn't changed the perception of corruption. He's changed the reality of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and also, I think that after four years of just, you know, en- yeah, endless partisan drama and war and warfare, um, people are tired but people are very very partisan you just have to look to the different groups responses to the, to the coronavirus you know, that having a partisan effect is insane but it yeah. absolutely does but I also think that people are I think by the time we've been in this pandemic for nearly a year and people are coming to vote I think people are just going to want a bit of normal mm. a bit of old normal and, you know, I think Biden's a good representative of old normal. Oh <laughs> that could possibly be his nickname.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it works pretty well as a strap line. Joe Biden, old normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Shall we move on to the Senate? Absolutely. So, um, In the Senate, the challenge Democrats have is we need to pick up, it depends whether we win the presidency or not. Because, you know, basic civics lesson the vice president casts the deciding vote in senatorial ties. Um, So we need about four seats um, to win the presidency uh, if we win the presidency, or five seats if we don't win the presidency. and that's working on the assumption, um, which looks likely, that we might, most likely, will lose Doug Jones's seat in Alabama. Now it hurts me to say that because he is a fantastic guy and a fantastic candidate for that state.
1: But that was a one one-off storm, wasn't it?
0: He's a Democrat in Alabama, and for those what? who, don't remember, <laughs> I mean, for those who don't remember um, uh, Doug Jones. He, um, he won his race very, very narrowly in, in uh, Alabama um, after competing against Roy Moore, um, who had multiple allegations of um, basically child abuse, you know, um, sexual harassment of minors. Um, so not a great <laughs> candidate for that, uh, for any state. Um, and he was a great candidate. He is a great candidate. He's been a really good senator. Um, but Alabama, at the end of the day, is Alabama. And right now there are two um, candidates in the Republican primary, both of whom are polling pretty well against Doug Jones, one being Jeff Sessions, the former attorney general, who was also a former senator for for Alabama. So he would be reclaiming basically his old job. Um, and the other whose name I, can't, I can never remember, but basically a college football coach, which, I mean... <laughs> there you go um so we need let's assume we need uh four seats or five seats where could those seats come from um well we've got really good prospects in arizona um which i'll talk about a little bit more colorado is fantastic maine um susan collins i'll come on to you in a little bit montana surprisingly um and north carolina um We've also got some chance. So we're currently ahead in all of those states. If you believe the polling, you know, which you may or may not. And again, voter suppression, polling error, all these things are factors and things can change. Um, States where we're not currently ahead, but where we have some reasonable chances um, include places like Iowa. There are two elections in Georgia, um, one special election and one regularly scheduled election. And even in places like, so Kentucky, although Mitch McConnell um, obviously is in a strong, strong conservative state, he's pretty unpopular in his state. And we have a really strong contender in Amy McGrath. Now, I don't expect us to win that, but it would be wonderful to be competitive. And I think we can be competitive. Kansas, um, uh, Chris Kobach, who's a very unpopular and uh, politician who recently lost. A governor's race, I think, in that state, um, is likely to be, or is, is in prospect to be, the Republican nominee, which I think would be bad for them and good for us. So there are opportunities here. Um, so, so if we take, I'm,
1: I'm slightly confused by the colouring. Uh,
0: so the brown is uh, too close to call, according to this calculation. But
1: but the grey, I've got California and Nevada.
0: Grey grey are states that are not, do not currently have Senate races
1: oh okay fine so they'll yeah. all be seated right 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 yeah you. so
0: remember not every senate not every senate seat is up for election in every in every
1: not like a general election over here where everyone goes at once exactly
0: only a third of the of the senate is up for election at any one time and normally you would never have two senate seats from the same state up at the same time it's only because we have a special election in georgia that that's happening
1: it makes tells so i was just looking at in california i'm fairly sure i <laughs> know which way that's going to go and the same with utah so. yeah no
0: Totally fair question. And it just goes to show how much I take for granted as a
1: so the sort of thing I ought to know, really, given how often I'm on this podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought it was just worth flagging a couple of uh, Senate races that are particularly interesting and worth watching. Um, this one is really cool. Um, this is the Arizona Senate race. Uh, Mark Kelly, who is the husband of Gabrielle Giffords, um, who um, you may remember, tragically, she um, was was shot by, um, uh, she was a representative who was shot um, in a, a terrible, terrible mass shooting. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter's just walked in behind me, that's why. <laughs> <About the>
1: podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Podcasting. Um, he is also a former astronaut and generally- A
1: former a,
0: astronaut? A former astronaut. Say, honey, I'm recording this. Can you, can you go away, please? Sorry, Judy. <laughs> Bye. Um, He is currently probably polling well ahead in all of the all of the recent uh, polls that we've seen from Arizona. Um, So that's really good news and looks like a really good prospect. Arizona is also a critical presidential opportunity for us. So that's going to be good news um, should that come through.
1: And don't we have one of the Arizona seats already?
0: Yes, we do. Um, the uh, we picked it up in the in two thousand eight, two thousand eighteen, and the person who lost against oh her name's gone up in my head, been but. So, yeah, that's right. For Against Christian Cinema is Martha McSally, who is the current candidate against Mark Kelly um, for the Republican. So it's nominee.
1: already failed to be popular once.
0: She already failed to win one time, and now she's up against uh, arguably an even more popular uh, politician. So we feel pretty good about this, this seat. If we don't win this seat on the on election night, then I would start to be, I, I would be concerned. Right, um, this is Sarah Gideon. Sarah Gideon is likely to be, um, we still haven't had our primary, but likely to be the Democratic nominee to run against Susan Collins in Maine. Um, Collins is the last remaining Democrat in the Northeast, in the, in New England, which is a-
1: uh, You mean the last remaining uh, Republican? Republican, yes.
0: Deep breath. Sarah Gideon, Sarah is an interesting one because although a prominent politician in the state of Maine, Obviously, she doesn't have a big national profile, as you'd be looking for. Um, So one of the other things that I think might be holding her back is she's raised a fair amount of money, but not compared to some other candidates in other races. So if you're a donor who's trying to think about where to put some money, I think Sarah Gideon would be a good one to put some money into right now.
1: I mean, Susan Collins is such an interesting target, isn't she? Because there's long been this argument about her that oh but she's one of those you know she's a she's a more reasonable republican you know maybe we need to keep republicans like her in the senate so that you know when they come back to their senses there some of them are still there but she just votes with trump all the time so actually fuck her (laughs) sorry i don't know if you use that language on your podcast but um um to hell with her (laughs) um and it's just yeah at the end of the day a win's a win Uh, and a seat to seat Uh, and I think if this is where the target is it doesn't matter who the target's against whether it's um, Susan Collins or Mitch McConnell
0: yeah, I think he, Susan Collins is particularly vulnerable right now because of the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Um, when she voted for him, which tipped the balance um, in, uh, in in the court, potentially in the direction of, um, of overturning abortion rights in the near future, um, I think she sort of violated a compact, a, an unwritten compact that she had with the voters of Maine, which said, I will do you know, I may not be, you know, aligned with the party that you support, but I will do no harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of voters, especially female voters, feel that she's really broken a, a, a an article of faith and trust that they had in her, that she would um, do enough to protect abortion rights. So, yeah, so- and I
1: think it's not necessarily about mad turnout for this nice looking lady with excellent taste in pearls. <laughs> uh, But more, yeah, I I guess suppressing uh, the previous Democrat, but likes Collins vote.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. But I would like to see uh, Sarah Gideon raise her profile. I would like to see people talking about her a bit more than they are, um, because I think we're going to.
1: That's why a national um, profile matters, isn't it, in fundraising?
0: Mm -hmm. Mhm, it matters for fundraising for sure. Um, and uh, you know, but we'll, but we'll see. The voters of Maine have been um, have stuck with Susan Collins to date, but she's polling worse than she ever has, and she has more. Uh, I would argue, kind of a more credible opposition than she's had before. And of course, the, the the partisan makeup of the country and the polarization split that we've seen might make it impossible for a, a Republican to hold a seat in in uh, in Maine going forward. Uh, and finally. Of course there's this guy.
1: This guy.
0: <laughs> well, this is one of our
1: uh And that's an interesting shot you've chosen there, Karen.
0: <laughs> Now now. <laughs> <laughs> this is Montana Governor Steve Bullock. Oh, um well-
1: one of the debates
0: from one of the debates yeah he was indeed a presidential candidate and um, you know didn't disgrace himself just didn't really take off either you know he was a um, but he's a you know whatever his profile may be nationally he's a very popular governor of the state of Montana and um, it, his, his poll ratings have if anything only gone up during the coronavirus crisis which he's perceived as having handled very well um, he is a Democrat in a very republican leaning state Montana is definitely not safe territory for any democrat but uh steve bullock has has performed very well there and he announced his candidacy for the senate there on the final day of the filing deadline um just a a month or two ago i think um, instantly converting that race from a, a, a sure thing Republican race to pretty much a, a, a break even. Um, so this is not one that we necessarily had on our target list. But when when Bullock was persuaded to to run in Montana, um, a lot of interest went there, and I think this is a really great example of how a Democrat can potentially outperform uh, the the presidential candidate in a state. Because I don't I wouldn't expect Joe Biden to come close in Montana, um, but you know, Steve Bullock has a, a really strong history of winning against, uh, winning against trend.
1: I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to take this slightly back because I am just fascinated by so many different aspects of this, <laughs> first of all, why is he leaning on a mic stand with someone holding up a mic for him?
0: I cannot tell you.
1: So that, that's my first question. Secondly, okay, I'm guessing that one's an iPhone, What's the round one over here? <laughs> For my
0: audio listeners, he's got something in his pocket. Maybe it's <laughs> chaw <and> tobacco. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it Maybe in my throat lozenges. I don't know. Yeah. It's but it's This is an image. It's an image of strength. He looks way hotter than I remember him being <laughs> on this photograph. It's a very well taken photograph. But <laughs> it's insane. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I like um, it they've got the
0: little like braids of grass, which look like, you know, they could be corn, you know, or like yeah, wheat. Yeah. No,
1: I mean, it, it's a the whole great farm thing. photograph of our time, <laughs> um, but also slightly fascinating and bonkers. There you um, go. I think, yeah, I mean, Montana doesn't feel like natural democratic territory, but as you say, he's already won a gubernatorial race. So he's persuaded yeah. probably a smaller turnout, but a, a, a plurality of voters to vote for him um it it, what what will be interesting is to see how um how strong because trump's vote is going to turn out Mm -hmm. um so how how much that still exists and how 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 much he can run how much he can drag joe biden on his coattails or whether it's trump dragging the the republican on his
0: yeah Hundred percent. But I mean, I think this is the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing Democrats need to be able to do if we're going to ever win the Senate, because the Senate is um, just structured inherently in a way that disadvantages uh, a party that is more urban in its makeup and um, where density favors us. Um, the Senate just disfavors us generally. So we will always need to find ways of winning Senate states in states that we won't win presidentially. And you know, you can argue, and I would argue that structurally that. Makes American politics more conservative, um, less radical than it would otherwise be. Um, but that's the that's the rules. Um, I think, so I think just taking a look back at the kind of overall Senate picture, I think one thing to bear in mind, I think there are really good opportunities in the Senate for us this year. And I think most of the reporting on this has started to say it looks like a better democratic year in the Senate than, than we were previously predicting, which is great. Um, the downside of that is we kind of need it to be because the next couple of election cycles look a lot harder for us. You know, as I was saying, because only a third of the Senate runs in each cycle, um, we have a lot more opportunities in this cycle there are a lot more kind of um republicans running in in democratic leaning states um that would give us opportunities to pick up than there will and then there will be in the next couple of cycles so if we can't win in this well, one
1: also if you do win the presidency that then goes against you generally and it makes me turns harder how strong the, the the memory of trump remains but yeah, yeah
0: yeah exactly so if we don't win the president the senate this time it will look difficult for us to reclaim it in the next couple of election cycles after that so it's kind of all to play for here right um what about the house <laughs> well um the house is you know cautiously good news again um right now we are on track to keep our majority um the the real risk looks like the possibility that it could be a reduced minor a reduced majority or of course it could be an increased majority but right now um if you just draw the line as you can see in the middle of this diagram um if you just look at where we are kind of Pretty, pretty comfortably in the polls. Um, we are on track to keep a majority. There are about 22 seats in the middle that are that are toss-up seats, um, and then Republicans are defending a lot of seats that they're in in prospect to potentially lose. Um, six of so 16 of the 22 d- districts that are rated a toss-up um, are currently. Um, uh, are currently Democratic-held, compared to just six for Republicans. That means, obviously, we won in 2018, a lot of seats that we quote shouldn't have won that were were Republican-leaning districts, which means we have a lot of kind of close seats now. So there's the prospect that we could lose them, and that's why I would say we would have a reduced majority. But it's still, I mean, unless something breaks against us, which it absolutely could, um, right now we still should hold on to enough to keep the majority. Um, But just as an indication of the kinds of challenges that we have ahead of us, um, we recently had a special election in California's 25th district. Um, This is the district that Katie Hill, unfortunately had to step down from after winning in 2018, um, her Orange County district. Um, She had a a scandal in which she was accused of of having relationships with staff members um, and stepped down. A special election was held to fill that seat. And this person who, uh, Christy Smith, is a Democratic candidate, She lost, um, lost quite badly um, last week. Uh, to the Republican candidate, and the same two people are running in uh, November. So this seat, um, if you're looking for bad news, I don't know why you would do that, but if you're out there looking for bad news, this is the kind of thing that should worry you. Um, I mean, because
1: you should be looking where the bad news is too.
0: <laughs> you need to you need to see the bad news so you know what to do about it. Because we won this seat by nine points in 2018, and we lost it by nearly 10 points um, in this in this special election. Now it's a special election. It's kind of crazy, you know, things happen differently. But I think this particularly points out to the challenges of um, getting out the vote in um, in the COVID era. Um, there, was, there was, of course, confusion about the ballot, um, who voted absentee ballot, et cetera. Um, and, and of course, a special election has a low turnout. So in the right confluence of low turnout and confusion over ballot access, we absolutely can, re- can lose some of these races that we should be winning. So we just need to be wary of that. Emma, any further thoughts on the, on the House?
1: Um, I mean, the House is, is so big and varied and complicated, it's, uh, but it's also the most gerrymandered part. I mean, the Senate, isn't gerrymandered, it's just bonkers. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, um, every, every state getting two representatives, and that's it, d- d- regardless of size of population or size of, you know, Texas and Long Island, but well, not Long Island, <laughs> Rhode Island. Yeah. Ridiculous. But <laughs> the House is obviously drawn up in such a way that it's, you know, there are, there are so many ridiculously safe seats. Uh, that it just you know you 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 said there are 22 seats that are contestable here
0: 22 seats that are that are break even that are like really close Um, obviously there are more seats that are leaning one way or the other that are potentially winnable or losable but yeah 22 is is really the number that's
1: I mean that that just doesn't strike me as democratic Mm. that's that's my main takeaway that 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 so little will go uncontested and therefore will have um often representatives who are on the extreme fringes because they're in safe seats.
0: Well, that absolutely leads me on to my next section because um, governorships and state races um, are absolutely vital because it's the governors and the state houses that will be determining the makeup of the you know literally drawing the districts for the next um, the next round of candidates um, in subsequent elections. Um, Democrats don't have as many opportunities in the governorships as I would like. Um, partly that's because we we reclaimed some um, important governorships in 2018. So. Um, You know, we've already kind of picked up some of the ones that we were that we were most targeting Um, right now. We've got um, most of the most of the gubernatorial races um, that look competitive are actually in GOP leaning districts, um, GOP leaning states. Um, What can we say? I mean, you know, there are safe Democrats like Jay Inslee in Washington state. People like Phil Scott in in Vermont potentially we could we could win some pickups there that kind of thing but for the most part um, I don't see a ton of opportunities it'll be interesting to see um, who wins the primary to um, to replace uh, Steve Bullock our new Senate candidate in Montana um, again that's going to be a really hard one for Democrats to hold on to so we're we're, we're projected to lose that race I would guess um, but unless Bullock can pull somebody through on his coattails which he might be able to do um you've got places like north carolina which is currently held by a democratic governor um, which we won uh, i think in 2018 we won that race um was it 2018 or 2010 anyway um recently um and even though that the state is still still republican leaning we're kind of expected to hold on to that seat so that's good uh, New Hampshire is held by a Republican governor. Yes, we could pick that up. I think New Hampshire is is fertile territory for us, but Sununu's been fairly popular, so I would be surprised. Um, it's kind of it's kind of all to play for, but. But, but not massively, uh, doesn't look like a massive swing in the governorships. State houses on the other hand are another kettle of fish. Um, these are absolutely essential. It is the state legislatures that will be drawing the redistricting, as I said. And we have some really interesting opportunities here. Um, best opportunities here, um, Arizona. Which is kind of becoming interesting everywhere, yeah. Arizona currently has um, a trifecta of governance that means it is held by a Republican governor and two republican houses of of congress of state state congress um, with just two seats get two seats of gain, we can break that trifecta and regain control of of the Senate chamber um, Iowa similarly we 've got a two, a, just a two seat gain would make a big difference um, we would break the the tri- trifecta of Republican governance in that state. Um, In Michigan, we just need to gain four seats. Now, Arizona and Michigan, obviously two really important presidential states for us as well. So we'll see a lot of turnout activity working there, which might work in our favor for state houses as well. Um, uh, so we again, it would be uh, it would be to take control. There is divided government in Michigan. Um, this would give us another chamber of government, which would be really helpful, especially to Gretchen Whitmer, the governor and uh, the Democratic governor in Michigan, who's doing a fantastic job. Uh, Minnesota, we just need to gain two seats, and we can get control of that chamber. Um, there's a lot of interesting things going on. Uh, things to watch out for.
1: Where um, a Democrat lost in 2018, though, wasn't it? Uh, the
0: Minnesota. Was it wasn't
1: not minnesota maybe
0: i'm thinking do you think are you thinking of senate or are you thinking of i what? am
1: yeah yeah not in the state house but in the. yeah no
0: amy amy klobuchar's uh senator for we have two two democratic senators in minnesota i'm pretty sure well
1: I, I can't think of where i'm thinking of there was a somewhere up that way
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, somewhere up that way yeah trying to think what you mean but anyway anyway sorry um and then uh, potential losses, so Alice, Alaska, which we have no right to control anyway, because um, <laughs> it's a strong Republican state, but it's currently controlled by this strange coalition of, even though there's a Republican majority, some of the Republicans in the state house aligned themselves with independents and a group of de- and, and Democrats, and they kind of created this weird coalition. Um, that's likely to, well, we'll see, but that, that weird coalition is likely to not stand. and.
1: Sure. What's um, the
0: driving force of that? Sorry?
1: What's the driving force of that? Oh,
0: Is just internal Alaska's Alaska be weird. <laughs> Yeah, just the internal internal shenanigans uh, amongst Alaskan politics. Um, Colorado, the GOP is um, trying to break our own trifecta, the Democratic trifecta of leadership in the state of Colorado. Um, they need uh, two seats um, to do that. Delaware, similarly, the GOP is trying to get, um, with just three, three seats, they could pick up and take control of that state house, which would be bitterly ironic, uh, considering that it's their Democratic senator who's on the presidential ballot for us, but uh, we'll see how we go. Um, so yeah, it's there's a lot going on at the state house level. And uh, one of the things I've been really encouraged by since the previous uh, previous round of um, state house votes is these seats have started to get a little bit more attention. There are new organizations out there that are focused just on um, concentrating on, on these local races. Flippable is one, but I know there are two or three other organizations that are really trying to focus people's attention on state house races. And I think that's fantastic. And my call to donors, so my, my two advices to people who are bits of advice to people who are thinking of giving money, whatever five or 10 pounds they can scrape up, $10, they can scrape up um, here or there or 50 or 500 or whatever you can give uh, would be one, look at Sarah Gideon, because I think she's not getting as much money as she should, considering her pivotal role in the race. And two, your money goes a lot further in state house races. Um, You know, a a single check for a $1,000 doesn't mean that much to a Senate campaign, Um, but it could make all the difference in the world to an individual state house candidate who basically um, spend very, very little money to have a huge impact on our democracy.
1: And yeah, also remember that the state houses are the engine room. That's where you build um future national candidates. That's where you um do redistricting. It's you know, it's where all of the the politics of the doorstep ha- actually happen. You know, bins and dog shit as we call it in local <laughs> council in the UK. Parking <laughs> potholes. Yeah. Parking and potholes, exactly. Parking and potholes if you're a Lib Dem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, absolutely, 100%. And I think as we're learning, a lot of important policies, like, for example, virus, virus preparedness, right? Pandemic preparedness happens at the national level, but is actually delivered at the state level. Um, well, it so, didn't happen at the national level. That was the problem. <laughs> should happen at the national level. doesn't, and therefore states do their job. Um, education, if you care about education at all, for God's sakes, throw all your energy into state and local races because they're the ones who make the decisions on these things.
1: And education, of course, was huge in getting rid of um, Scott Walker, wasn't it, in Wisconsin? Uh, eventually it was,
0: yes. And, and uh, <laughs> the, the teachers union. And in fact, Tony Evers, the Democratic governor um, who defeated uh, Scott Walker, is a, was a teacher and was, a mem- was an, an activist in a, uh, an, an education trade union. So 100%. Yeah. So get on it, guys. Um, So we've looked at kind of a really pretty broad cross section of the election, and there's a lot going on in November 2020. Um, My takeaway is that we are in a pretty strong position. I know that, you know, this is an era where um, Democrats always want to be like, oh, we can never win because all the factors are against us. And I know that people are Um, inclined to believe that Trump has some sort of magical powers of of overtaking all political norms, Um, but that just doesn't bear out. I mean we won the 2018 uh, midterm election in the House um, because we did really good uh, groundswell campaigning, because we focused on having good candidates, and we can do that again on on every level from the presidential level on down. Um, Donald Trump does not have magical powers, in fact he is losing a lot of the support that he previously relied upon. Having said all of that, this is going to be the hardest GOTV operation that any of us have ever been alive to experience. We have never had to campaign at a time of national camp- pandemic um, in it, at this scale. We have never had to campaign at a time of, um, you know, massive unemployment. I mean, I think we're at what, 17% unemployment and, and rising. Um, we've never had to campaign at a time when we can't hold rallies, when we can't um, do canvassing. Um, we don't know how this is gonna go. And I don't think we should make any assumptions about it. I also don't think we should make any assumption about the election being free or fair. Demo- Democrats need to be aware that um, Republicans up and down the ballot um, are terrified that they will lose their power and they will suppress or block um, our vote at every turn if we allow them to do so. So we need to be really sharp on picking up any um, unlawful activity and we need to be organized to overcome you know, lawful but unethical attempts to suppress our vote here and everywhere. Um, If we do not take the Senate in 2020, things will get a lot harder for us electorally um, because the next couple of election cycles, but also in terms of governing, even if we win the presidency, um, as we certainly saw in a lot of the Obama era, and and indeed as Democrats have been able to um, curtail a lot of Trump's attempts to get things through through legislatively, um, we will need to have some kind of governing partnership in place so that a future President Biden can actually deliver on some of these things that, that we dream of doing so um, it's really really important that we focus on the senate um, it's just going to be really hard it's just going to be really hard and we will have to put everything we have into it in whatever way we can um, but the, the the victory is there for the taking emma yeah. what do you
1: reckon i think that's uh, yeah i think that's the right balance of caution and optimism <laughs> um i'm probably a little more pessimistic than you just because uh emotionally i just can't take being optimistic at the moment
0: yeah um, i think a lot of people feel that way
1: but um i i also know that optimism is essential um to actually getting people gunned up to go out and do the work you know if you just convince yourself that nothing's going to work and it's all going to be dreadful then you won't do that and that that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah um so yeah, I, th- I mean, cautiously optimistic is a good place to land, I think.
0: Yeah, cautiously optimistic. And the caution is provided we do the work, right? Uh, we, we just need to hit the ground.
1: And here's another thing that you haven't covered here, but I do think is, is, is another thing that worries me slightly, keeps me up at night. The Trump guys are really good at online. Hmm. Uh, And have a huge huge um, head start and always did and when this was going to be a normal election that worried me Yeah, now that online is almost all we have that terrifies me
0: Yeah So I think it's worth unpacking that into a couple of different things so um, What does it mean to be good at online? Right and I think I don't I know you don't mean this but just to be absolutely clear so in the 2016 election there was a lot of talk about um, Trump's uh, Facebook activity. Um, And I think a lot of that was overblown in that he didn't have any kind of Cambridge Analytica persuaded a lot of people, um, I think falsely that they had come up with some kind of, clever and radical new innovation for um, targeting people by their emotional contacts and that, you know, and they did indeed break Facebook's own rules in a number of different ways and arguably some laws um, to um, steal people's data. But the impact of doing that was nowhere near as big as as people think. the thing that Trump did that was really smart and that he is still doing in this election um, and that the Biden campaign is not anywhere close to matching is just investing huge in online, um, huge in paid advertising and letting the tools, letting the platforms determine performance. So basically he just ran hundreds and thousands of ads and just kept buying more of the ones that were working well, rather than trying to kind of second guess some big strategy and put out all the money behind one or two ads. Now, some of the ads were malicious. Some of the ads were inaccurate. Um, we're gonna see a lot more of that in this cycle and I'm not saying Democrats should do that. But we need to get a lot more agile and a lot more quick on our feet about putting stuff out there in a big way. And Trump already gets that.
1: You know, we're bringing the Queensbury rules to a gunfight, as I've said before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, so it's a big challenge. And I think, you know, the good news is I have read uh, that Trump is, uh, sorry, Biden is staffing up um, on digital quite a lot. Um, But staffing up still means he's doubling his current staff, but his current staff is radically undersized, I would say. So I hope he will double it again after that. Uh, They just need more, more bodies, more people, more stuff. And that's it please rate and review if you've enjoyed this episode if you are um, interested in seeing a video version of this presentation it will be shortly online not yet but very shortly um, at the democratically 2020 youtube channel so search for that democratically 2020 on youtube Um, we'll have a video version of this uh, available so that you can see the presentation on which it was based Um, you can reach me on twitter at karenjr that's k-a-r-i-n-j-r you can reach emma she's at Emma Burnell on Twitter. Um, if you are an American listening to the Sound of My Voice, please, please, please register to vote and request an absentee ballot for this year's election. It's really important that we all plan to vote absentee this year. We don't know what's going to happen with the November election. So just make sure that you do everything you can to secure your vote today. Uh, the website you want to go to is votefromabroad.org if you're an American abroad or vote.org if you're an American back home. Thank you so much. I should let you know that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me and I wish you a very happy week.